Our scripture this morning is out of Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 12. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kibar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts by my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, and its entrances, that is, its whole design. And make known to them as well all its statutes, and its whole design, and all its laws. And write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all its laws, and all its statutes, and carry them out. This is the law of the temple, the whole territory on the top of the mountain, all around, shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple." This is the very word of God. A few miles to our northwest, there is a house. It's between MacArthur and Rockwell, north of 122nd, south of the Turnpike, and it's a sacred place. I just visited there a few days ago. Anybody live there? I didn't think so. All right. Uh, About two miles south of us, uh, between Classen and Chartel, between 13th Street and 18th Street, there's another sacred place. I drive by there quite a bit. Anybody live there? Those two places are places where I used to live. They're sacred places to me. I go by there every now and then to these houses that I once called home. Um, My... My son, Quentin, went with me just recently to that house in the northwest part of the city. Uh, He didn't ever live there, but he was very interested in seeing the place. We drove up, and it was a nice day, and my neighbor that lived right across the street from us was outside. Now, we moved away from there, uh, what, almost, how long ago would that be? I'm doing the math in my head. Almost 13 years ago? And my neighbor was outside, and it was just like old times. Sacred places, 
places that I called home. If you're going to make sense of your Bible, you're going to need to have an understanding of sacred places. And the most sacred place in the Bible, in the great story of the Bible, is the temple of Israel, Israel's temple. You can't really make sense of the Old Testament and what's happening in the story of Israel until you begin to get a sense of sacred place. Ezekiel's final vision begins in these first three chapters with a tour of a new temple, a new temple of Israel. And as Ezekiel is taken on this tour by this bronze man who is seen measuring the temple in order to give us some sense of its dimensions, we also begin to get an idea of some of the unique arrangement of how the temple was built. When we come to the text that Taylor just read for us in chapter 43, the vision reaches a fever pitch as Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord entering and filling the temple. Now, what is all of this stuff about? We Christians today are often not quite sure what to do with Ezekiel's final vision and this tour of the temple. So I want to try to help us with that today. We're talking about sacred spaces. Let's consider first what a temple is the meaning of the temple. Second, how this particular temple is built, the measurement of the temple. And then lastly, with those two things kind of in our understanding, we'll get a sense of what the temple means, its message. So first, the meaning of the temple. Second, the measurement of the temple. And third, the message of the temple. The meaning, the measurements, the message. First, the meaning of the temple. This is where I think, uh, this isn't specifically in our text today, except for the fact that there's a temple here. And if we're going to make sense of this vision, grab any meaning, and you'll see why this is really important for us as Christians as we go along, then we need to get an understanding about what temples are for, why they're built, why they exist. I'm sure, on the one hand, the answer to that question is readily available to you. You know that a temple is a place where God resides. Again, at the end of this section in our text this morning in chapter 43, Ezekiel sees Israel's God returning to this new temple in the new Jerusalem. And that's because, well, of course, that's what a temple is for, right? It is quite simply God's house, <laughs> the place he calls home. And the reason that there is a house for God is so that God can dwell in it. By the way, that is not unique to Israel. We have extra-biblical records of other nations who went to great effort to rebuild their temples. So maybe after a, another nation had conquered them and they finally revolted and set themselves free, one of the first things these ancient nations would do is rebuild their temples. And when those building projects were complete, extra-biblical records tell us that the king of the nation 
would bring restored images of their deities back into the temple. This is the reason for a temple to be built. An existing temple with the nation's God, or at least various images of God at home within it, signified that the nation was at peace. The nation was all was well. Shalom had come to the nation. Because the alternative, of course, meant exactly the opposite. If there's no temple, there's no assurance that God is present. Even if there is a temple, but there is no deity residing within it, then that sends the signal that the God, the deity of the nation, is not at home. That he has left his house. And as anyone who lives in the urban core of Oklahoma City knows, an abandoned house is an invitation, not for no one to live there, but for anyone to live there. So whether you call it a temple or not, there are real sacred spaces everywhere and some kind of deity that calls that place home. A temple is not just God's house. It is, catch this, this is so important, it is God's house on earth. It is the presence of God right here, In the material world, it it is, in Bible terms, the place where heaven and earth intersect. Now, in a secular society like ours, we might say that we've done away with all that religious superstition. That there is no need anymore for temples to house deities. Oh, sure, you can have one if you want, private property. Please do keep it all private. When you go out in public, into your workplaces, into your communities, leave all that temple talk off to the side. And the argument is that there is no proof. We live in a rational, enlightened world. No proof that there's any kind of heavenly gods. The material world is all that we can agree exists. So the claim of secularization says, since we can't at least be sure that there is a God, that he is present anywhere on earth, you can have your religion, but keep it out of the public places. No more temples, right? That's one of the greatest lies of secularization. Because it's a misunderstanding of what a temple is. You see, Israel's temple was not simply a religious center. Call Israel's temple, well, that's where they did their religion, and you've just misunderstood, you've just misunderstood the whole point of a temple. You see, the temple was not just a religious center, it was the center of every aspect of national existence. Not just a place for Israel's worship, but also the place for Israel's legislation the place of Israel's economics. It was not just God's house, the place where God was present on earth. It was also the place that symbolized divine power. Power that was at work on behalf of the nation. So 
the attempt to separate religion from all other aspects of public civilization is an ideology that comes from Western civilization. Yeah, Western civilization, a civilization that has been radically remade and transformed by Christianity itself. In other words, just ask people from non-Western nations to separate their religion from everything else about how they see the world. It's not going to work. Try telling Muslims from the Middle East that their religion can be separated off from every other way they see the world. In fact, secularism is more like a Christian sect than it is a rebellion against Christianity. As one Indian historian has written, quote, Christianity spreads, again, this is a non-Western perspective, right? Christianity spreads in two ways, through conversion and through secularization, end quote. The secular claim depends on this facade of public religious neutrality. But once we understand that the temple is the symbol, not of religious power, but of political power, of national power, we understand that every civilization, every nation has at least one temple, and maybe a lot more. And these temples are all making claims, claims of power, and these claims of power will naturally clash when they encounter other temples making the same kind of claim. No, secularism is not neutral, no matter how much we're being told that today. It makes a claim of power. Uh, just consider this. I don't know if this is true anymore. It's been a long time since I was in high school. But some states once required students to pass an examination on that state's history before they could graduate. Did you do that? Do you have to pass a state exam, know your history? Okay, I see some heads nodding. I doubt if you took the, had to know Oklahoma history that you also had to know other states' histories or pass their exams. No state ever required their students to pass state exams, state history from some other state. I think this is true, that we're all still required to take some kind of exam on United States history. I looked this one up before graduation. Probably a good idea. But guess where they don't require you to pass an exam on U.S. history before you graduate? In other nations. They also, by the way, don't sing the national anthem or the Pledge of Allegiance at schools in Russia. So... We've got temples all over the place in all kinds of public places. And where you find temples, you're going to find gods, claims of power, claims of authority. This is the reason that we build sacred places. It's the reason we built the White House. It's a temple. The claim of power being made by whoever happens to call it home. Same is true, of course, with the U.S. Capitol, the various other state capitals and those who office there. Even your favorite sports stadium is a temple. Our secular society is filled with temples and so-called gods. We are not irreligious, 
secular, neutral. We are too religious with temples dotting the landscape. The only difference is we have this really unique power to vote our gods out of their house or to trade them away to some other home stadium. So maybe that just makes us our own gods. At any rate, if we're going to make sense of Ezekiel's temple vision, we need to keep in mind this is what a temple means. And by the way, if you say, well, that's all cool Old Testament history stuff, if you're going to understand Jesus and the Christian claim, then you also have to understand this because Jesus You read the Gospels, he gets himself into a lot of trouble because of what he had to say about the temple. He's making a rival claim of power. That's what he's doing. He's not creating a new religion. He's saying there's a new power. There's a new claim of authority. You read all the Gospels, they all make it clear that Jesus got himself killed, at least in part, because he challenged Israel's temple. And the New Testament claim, as I'm now going to try to prove to you, is that Ezekiel's vision of the temple that we're reading about right here in Ezekiel 40 to 43 is a vision fulfilled in Jesus himself. So next, consider probably the most striking thing in this text, the measurement of this temple that Ezekiel sees. So this mysterious bronze man takes Ezekiel on a tour of the temple, and he gives us, as he does so, he's got a measuring rod in his hand. He's got, some, he's got a, a tape measure <laughs> with him, and he's going around. And uh, when we remodeled our house, the people who remodeled, the first time they showed up at our house, they came with a tape measure. And they, they just went, like, measured every wall, every corner. And it was, it was fascinating as they just follow him around. That's kind of what's happening here. And as he does this, you start to get a sketch, a diagram of how this temple is built and also some of its unique features. So here's the first thing that we find. And I'm just, we're looking at three chapters here. So skimming through, but let's begin at the beginning. The first thing Ezekiel tells us is that there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area. The height of the wall and its thickness are reported to us, they're both one reed. Now, that's about nine or ten feet. So, a pretty tall wall, a very thick wall. The tour begins then, as you read through the text, at the eastern gate, moves into the outer court, then to the north-south gates, before entering the inner court via the south gate. (laughs) There, Ezekiel describes chambers and a vestibule. In chapter 41, he approaches what the ESV calls the nave. It's a great hall between the vestibule and the holy of holies. In verse 3, chapter 41, the bronze man goes into the holy of holies, and he tells Ezekiel, that's where we are, the holiest place. He then proceeds to give more detail about the chambers, the general appearance of the temple. And by the way, there's enough a description here to come up with some pretty interesting, helpful sketches of this temple vision. But what really catches our attention is that this this temple doesn't 
really look much like a temple. Not because it's so small, but because it's so enormous. For example, I know we don't, use, we don't usually talk about reeds for measuring or cubits, but a comparison to Solomon's temple shows an interesting, um, some interesting comparisons. For example, in Solomon's temple, you know, that's the one that at this point in history, the Babylonians have just burned to the ground. We are told that each, we find in comparison, that each of the gates of Ezekiel's vision are like their own temples, their own buildings. Each one of Ezekiel's gates measures 50 cubits long by 25 cubits wide. The entire temple that Solomon built was only 10 cubits longer and 5 cubits smaller in width. So each one of Ezekiel's gates is almost like its own temple itself. When we compare the scope of Ezekiel's temple with Solomon's, there are all kinds of similarities. There is a three-part structure in both, here called vestibule, the nave, and the inner room, or the Holy of Holies, just like in Solomon's temple. Some of the dimensions that Ezekiel gives are exactly the same as Solomon's. But what's more interesting in the measurements are the differences, the colossal scope, the size, but a spe- and this, pol- this almost palatial size. In fact, what could we call this temple? It's, it's not much of a temple. It's more like a palace. It's more like a castle. Um, in, in large ancient Greek cities, temples would show up all throughout the landscape because, like us, They worshiped lots of gods. But in Israel's city, there was only one temple. Many temples in ancient pagan cities, pagan countries, because there's many gods. But for Israel, one temple taking up colossal space. Even Solomon's temple, when you compare it to ancient the ancient city of Jerusalem appears to have taken up about 25% of the entire city. In Ezekiel's temple vision, it's even bigger than that. The temple does not exist within the city. The temple is the city. And throughout the tour, Ezekiel regularly refers to this temple city. He doesn't even really use the word temple. The ESV translates it that, but regularly he just uses the word house. It's a word that is used not so much for a temple, which has its own Hebrew word, but for a palace. A big house is what the nave is called. So what exactly is Ezekiel seeing here? It's a temple because it measures in some ways compares to Solomon's temple, has the three-part structure, but he calls it a city, a city on a hill. It's a temple, but it's like a palace, and it's like a city. Now, in other words, we can can scope this out, we can kind of give diagrams, but exactly what Ezekiel's seeing here is sort of perplexing. There's not anything like it. The sheer scope of it, it were it to be built, would take your breath away. But surely, no one's ever going to attempt to build such a thing, right? (laughs) Some Christian eschatologies take Ezekiel's vision that way. 
Many of us who grew up in the church were raised within a theological view that saw the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in 1948 as the beginning, the precursor to Ezekiel's vision, whispers of plans to take over the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, tear down the Dome of the Rock and build up this apocalyptic final temple. What I want to say to us today is that Ezekiel's vision of the temple is not something that's waiting to be built. It has already been built. Ezekiel's vision of the temple is what Jesus claims to have come to build or to inaugurate. Okay, so the day before his crucifixion, Jesus said this to his disciples. You're going to know these words. You'll know probably where where they come from. Listen to what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. It's John 14, 1 through 3. Now, when Jesus says, in my Father's house, what does he mean? The only other time that Jesus in the Gospels speaks of his Father's house, he's talking about the temple. So when Jesus says that in his Father's house there are many rooms, he's not talking, sorry to mess up your childhood imagination, he's not talking about mansions in heaven. He's talking about a temple with lots of rooms in it. And guess what you find when you sketch out Ezekiel's final temple vision? You find a city, a temple that's like a city with many rooms. Furthermore, when Jesus talks here in John 14 about going to prepare a place, he's not not talking about a destination that he's traveling to. He's talking about a work that he's about to accomplish. I'm going to prepare a place. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to to create a, a, a home, a room. He is going to the cross. And he's doing it in order to prepare a place for us. That's what he's talking about. I know this is the kind of text that you might hear in a, in a, in a funeral homily or something, but that's just not what he's talking about. He's talking about his work in going to the cross to prepare a place where he says, you can, we can come and live with him in his city, in his palace, in his temple. He's going to prepare a place, not in heaven, but on earth, a place where heaven and earth will meet, will intersect. So Jesus says in John 14, I am going to, I am about to prepare a place through what I'm going to do on the cross. I'm going to create a new house, a new city, a new world. And when his work was complete, when Jesus was able to say from the cross, it is finished, there would now be a house with room for everyone. 
So when Jesus speaks in this passage of his coming again to take you to myself, he's not referring to what you and I might call his second coming that is still in the future. Not here, not in John 14, because as he goes on to say in verses 18 to 20, his coming again refers to his appearing to his disciples after the resurrection. And then it would all make sense. You see, Jesus had once made a rather startling, startling claim, and you've got to let it sink in <laughs> if you were in the first century, a claim about the temple in Jerusalem that no one understood what he meant until after his resurrection. He said in John 2, verse 21, destroy this temple, and I'll build it in three days. And everybody said, it's taken 40 years to build this thing. How's he going to do it in three days? It wasn't until after the resurrection that the disciples understood he was referring to the temple of his body. It seems that John understood that Jesus was fulfilling Ezekiel's final vision. And yet, when we turn to Revelation 21, do you remember that we've, we've observed that Ezekiel's final vision is what ends our New Testament as well? Revelation 21 and 22, when you turn to Revelation 21, John, the same guy who wrote, he's talking about the temple of his body, John says in Revelation 21 that he sees a new city. He calls it a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. What is this new city? What is this new Jerusalem? Well, it's, it's a temple because Revelation 21 verse 3 John hears God say, the dwelling place of God. It's a temple. The dwelling place of God is with man. It's a temple on earth. So John understands this is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. But then here's what's striking about Revelation 21. In verse 22, John says, when he looks at the city, there's no temple there. <laughs> well, he kind of says there's no temple there because he goes on to say right after that, because the city has for its temple the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The temple is his body. So Ezekiel's temple will never be found in Jerusalem. It is found in Christ. Whosoever will can come, find a dwelling place there. Commentators point out that one of the interesting features of Ezekiel's vision is not only the fact that there are many rooms, many dwelling places, but that there's free and open access. The gates are open. You can move throughout the house because the final vision, when God has done his final work, there will be a a really big house with room for anyone who wants to come and find rest there. From any tribe, from any tongue, from any language, from any culture, come and find rest in the house of God. Everyone is welcome. So, that's all true. If this is what Jesus did, then now, you can begin to hear the message of the temple. You begin to hear clearly what the temple 
what the temple means to you and to me. Take a look now at chapter 43, the text that we read this morning, and you've got to see this. Here in, the, in chapter 43, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord returning to his temple. And in verse 7, Ezekiel hears God's voice. Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Do you hear Revelation 21 in that? I mean, it's the same, almost the exact same words. So there can be no misunderstanding. I'm sorry for you who grew up dispensational like me. There can't be any misunderstanding here. We know where this place is, and it is a person. The place where anyone can come and meet God, the God of Israel, is in Jesus. And by the way, you really, we Christians need to be clear on this. When we talk about God, when we talk about God and who God is, you need to start with Jesus. If you want to know who God is, you have to meet him there. In his temple, in Christ, Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Some of us need to start over with our preconceived ideas about God and let the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments that reveal to us the person of Jesus make it plain who this God truly is. God's promise throughout the Bible is that he will dwell with man on earth. And his promise is fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. So do you know him? Do you know him through the Old and New Testaments? He is the one who is the beginning of your search for God. He's also the end of your search for God. That's why the Apostle Paul could state the whole summary of his ambition in life in Philippians 3.10 was to know him. I want to know him. Is that your ambition? God continues to speak to Ezekiel in verse 7, saying that when he comes into his temple, look what he says, the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name. Now, it's important to note the order here. The glory of the Lord returns to his temple, and then he speaks these words to the prophet. Don't get the order mixed up. It's not that he comes in order to make his people ashamed. Verses 10 and 11 could be read that way, but it seems better to understand this prophecy not as the beginning of shame, but the end of it. The temple of God has now been cleansed. That's the only way God could come back into his temple. It has to be cleansed. Uh, the, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system could not have been more, clean, more, more plain. God doesn't live in dirty houses. So if God has taken up his residence in his temple, then the house is clean. God takes the pollution of sin quite seriously. But when Jesus came, no wonder he was 
crucified. When Jesus came, he came with words of pardon. He came with words of forgiveness, absolving sin time and time again, welcoming sinners to come and dine with him. And I mean sinners. (laughs) People who didn't live right. People who didn't look right. It was to them that Jesus threw open the gates and said, welcome. You can come. Because he had cleansed God's temple with his own blood. If you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Your shame has met its end. You and I gather together every Lord's Day under the authority of God's word to hear those wonderful words. After all, it really can sound too good to be true when you and I seem to go on racking up debt throughout the week. But this new temple, the message of this new temple is there's forgiveness for everyone. There's room for everyone. It's one of the reasons why we say the Apostle Creed, Apostles' Creed every Sunday, week after week, because we live by it. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. These are the things we live our lives by because you're going to live by a creed one way or the other. You could say you are secular that you're not religious, that you're neutral, you don't have a creed, but it's a fraud. It's a fraud. The God of secularism is yourself. As apparently the students at one school in McAllister, Oklahoma, confess every day. You can look it up. This is their school creed. If you go to this particular school, and I'm not picking on a particular school, but if you go to this particular school in McAllister, Oklahoma, this is what you are confessing. This is your creed every day. Here it goes. I am an intelligent and assertive student. My destiny is in my hands. I will overcome all obstacles which stand in my way. The decisions I make today will affect the rest of my life. I will have respect for myself and others. I will also set a good example for my peers. Education is my ticket to success. If I say it can be done, I will achieve my goals. It's a creed. My concern here, though, is not with the secularists and their creeds, but with professing Christians who live by a different creed. Because look at the end of verse 10. When God says, and they shall measure the plan, that's a weird, weird statement, isn't it? What does he mean? If you see that Christ is the true and final temple, if you find your home in him, then this has massive implications for your vocation in the world. Because God has a plan for his temple. And for everyone who lives in it. Take a look as we close to this one passage in Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to see it. Ephesians chapter 5. This is in our prayer guide 
for Wednesday in the month of May. So I just read it Wednesday morning and prayed through this. Caught my attention. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says this. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Notice what it says. It doesn't say at one time you were in darkness. That's true. At one time you were darkness, but now, it doesn't say you are in the light. It says you are light in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. So don't you know, Paul says, I could just hear him say, it's what I'm feeling right now to you. Don't you know, Christian, that, this is 1 Corinthians 6, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God himself resides in you. So you are not your own. You are not the God of your body. Your body is a temple. It's on a mission. It has a message. But the God at the center, if you're in Christ, is God's own Holy Spirit poured into everyone who belongs to him. And that means God has a work for you to do. God has a mission to send you on. His house exists not just for him to live there, but for him to show his power there. His power to a dark world. It's an amazing privilege. That's who you are if you're in Christ. God sends you like a temple into dark places to be light in the Lord. He died for you. He ascended into heaven to pour out his spirit within you because he wants to do his work through you. That's the message of the text. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you now in the name of Jesus, To make plain what a temple is, what Jesus claims as himself, the true and final temple that will never be destroyed, never be overcome. It's the power of God. The power of God. And the amazing privilege it is to be united to the Messiah, to be in Christ to be joined together with him and with his people is to now be on the mission of spreading this, this message, this glorious good news. In my father's house, there are many rooms. There are plenty of dwelling places, plenty of places to come and find rest in Christ. Whosoever will could come. There's forgiveness here. There's pardon here. And then even more than that, as if it couldn't get any better. Here, here it comes. Even better than that is this glorious good news that you've sent us, dwell and dwelt by your Holy Spirit, like little temples into dark places. 
to welcome even more people into your glorious kingdom. Yeah, show us who we are, O oh God. Remind us of your power within us by your Holy Spirit and send us out with this good news upon our lips. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen.